This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The fate of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is now in the hands of the jury after almost a day of closing arguments in a courthouse ring with concrete barriers and razor wire and National Guard members on patrol. Minneapolis and other cities across the country are bracing for the verdict. Joining me is former public defender Krista Groshek, managing attorney of Groshek Law in Minneapolis. Give us your opinion of the closing arguments in general. My opinion about really both sides is that it was just far too long. You know, I understand that there was some complex issues, and I understand that there's a lot of ground to cover, but I do think that the cases could have been streamlined easier for the jurors to really wrap their minds around it. I think that a case that could otherwise have been argued from a very emotional point of view was argued from a very technical point of view, which I was a little surprised at coming from the prosecution. Neither lawyer told a story to the jury. Looking at it from Derek Chauvin's eyes, looking at it through George Floyd's eyes, nobody really told that story. The prosecution did a little. I think they they tried their case. They also, in, in very repetitive fashion, told the same story over and over again. So given the amount of experts that they had, I certainly think that they made their point over and over again. And while it was long, I, you know, I think that detracted from their message. I, I still think that they made their point. The prosecution painted Chauvin as a rogue actor and kept on you know, emphasizing that policing is not on trial. Also, believe your eyes. Yeah. So do you think those were good points? Well, to believe your eyes, you know, that was a repeat uh, from the opening, you know, which is really effective. You want to take a theme and carry it all the way through to its conclusion, pointing out things that support that theme as you go along. But I was a little surprised in some ways to hear the prosecution say this is, you know, policing is not on trial. Certainly they wouldn't have to concede that point. I don't think they, they would have had to make it in big, bold letters, but they certainly wouldn't have had to concede it because... So many people are concerned, you know, that the way Derek Chauvin acted is the way police officers act all around the country. And perhaps they were trying to sidestep, you know, what could have been, you know, arguments down the road uh, with regard to an appeal. But I just thought it would have been better if they left it unsaid. The defense doesn't have the burden, obviously, and the defense attorney emphasized that and reasonable doubt. Do you think they made any case for reasonable doubt on the jury's part? I definitely think that while at first blush, it felt a little confusing that defense was playing, you know, the videos where we see, you know, Floyd in these compromised positions crying and pleading. At first blush, there was a question, well, why is the defense playing this? But he presented a number of different uh, body cameras that showed what, what the police officer saw at the scene, and in particular what Chauvin saw when he showed up, right? Like, this is what he's confronted with. Um, and I thought the defense brought out some other unique points that, you know, when Chauvin did engage, that he had his body camera kicked off, you know, there was enough force from a kick. Um, he also tried to point out, you know, that the police car was rocking when there was attempts to put uh, Floyd in the back of the car. So, I, I do think the defense brought out things about what actually was happening versus what people were perceiving was happening, people who were on the other side of the police car. And that was something that the defense alluded to in the opening. And they came back and then and then tied that up nicely in the closing. So I do think that the defense had a number of 
things that should give the jury pause about you know what was happening, why officers responded the way that they did, and then you know what do we really know about these medical circumstances? The defense pointed out that the prosecution experts came in and they didn't present a unified theory. They each sort of had their own theories about why they didn't believe that you know Floyd died of an overdose or or a heart attack, but their theories didn't exactly uh, come together like a nicely coordinated quilt, for example. So I think the defense got some shots in. Some of it was just hard um, to keep track of because it was so long. The prosecution had so many expert witnesses, and the defense had a few expert witnesses, but even their experts seemed to have conceded some factors on cross-examination. So I wonder if that is a big problem for the defense. It wasn't really a battle of the experts so much, like you see in some trials where it's like renowned expert against that renowned expert. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, in order for experts to be credible, certainly there are points that they have to concede. If they don't concede it, well, then they lose credibility, right? If they're going to maintain um, a certain position that, you know, it's, it's contrary to the facts or logic, right? Um, they're generally speaking is some things they need to concede. In this case, these experts seem to concede and easily concede um, some pretty important points. I expected or, or believed, and, you know, perhaps I don't have all the information, but I thought Fowler had employed a panel or was part of a panel of other experts that came together uh, to give opinions from a holistic point of view. I thought perhaps then we would start hearing from these other uh, experts that worked in some of these other areas, right? If it was a heart doctor and a lung doctor and a brain doctor, right, and a toxicologist and a medical examiner, if they all would sit around and look at everything from their unique points of view, I thought maybe after Fowler's testimony, we'd hear the opinions of some of those people to get an understanding of why Fowler testified the way he did and, in fact, then have some additional expert opinion evidence to bolster his point. But we didn't see that. We didn't see that, and obviously, you know, we're not privy to why. Um, But I thought that the defense at that point then would pull out some of these additional experts. How important are these closing arguments? As a practicing attorney, I, I like to believe that closing arguments are what can make the difference. And in many cases where there's complex information, I, I believe that it is. You know, sometimes it's hard to see exactly where a defense attorney is going after there's a, a plethora of questions asked. And it's about topics that, you know, lay people or even the lawyers, you know, uh, haven't addressed or become familiar with before. So I do think closing arguments make a really big difference. I think opening uh, statements are also equally important. So, you know, the tenor of it the themes, uh, storytelling, I think is super important. And we didn't see a lot of that from either side here, really. Um, I think closing arguments do have the potential to, to make or break a case. I do. And so, you know, I know that you thought they went too long and they didn't tell a great story, but did they get their points across? I think each side, yes, got their points across. And I think each side sort of went about it in the same way, which is pretty interesting to me. It was almost like the attorneys matched their style, right? Like, typically speaking, we see prosecutors being a little bit more focused on the elements, maybe a little bit more rigid, maybe a little bit more dry. And then, you know, generally speaking, we see defense attorneys being very colorful and 
telling a lot of stories and really digging into some of those visceral elements. We didn't see that here. And perhaps that was strategic on Sir Nelson's part, that he was going to meet each one of their arguments step by step. He was going to go through it uh, categorically. So I do think in that way, then, the arguments felt pretty equally yoked, and certainly in terms of time, but definitely in terms of how much they covered. Each side went into great detail and oftentimes revisited, you know, different categories to make their voices heard and their points known. So I would say I think each side got to what they needed to get done, and they were very thorough about it. What about the requirement that the use of force was unreasonable? Well, I think that, quite frankly, was the weaker part of their case. You know, Chauvin's out is that he was reasonable in the force that he chose to employ. If he's acting outside of that, that becomes a real problem for him. And when it comes to, you know, the expert that testified for the defense, you know, he said some things that made it difficult for the jury, I think, to want to trust him, like how he was resting comfortably on the ground and how putting somebody down in a prone position isn't a use of force. And then he had to walk those things back and then did do so without being pressed too hard um, by the prosecutor. So I like what what, uh, Mr. Nelson did when it came to the closing argument, going back to those manuals, going back to the actual training materials. And, you know, that brings out a fair amount of bias, I think, as it relates to the state's experts that tried really, really hard to distance themselves from Chauvin as far as they could. So while I think the defense's expert witness, perhaps um, didn't give them um, as much play as they'd hoped, I do think they did a nice job with the exhibits um, and the training materials that are in evidence and that the jury will have an opportunity to look at, you know, up close and personal and review. Would you explain the differences between the, the three charges that he's facing, what they have to prove in each? Sure. So as it relates to um, the felony murder, the top count, where, you know, there's a much higher uh, maximum penalty should the prosecution get a conviction, then they can ask for upward departures and whatnot to try to get closer to that uh, maximum. They have to prove that he was intentionally committing an assault, and in this case was intentionally uh, making it so George Floyd couldn't breathe. If they can prove that, right, then they're in a good position to then say, yep, and Chauvin was a substantial um, uh, cause of uh, Floyd's death. And therefore, because he intentionally employed um, acts that then um, caused him not to breathe, he's, he's guilty of what came later, what, and that being the death, right? For some um, defense attorneys in, in the circles that, that I'm in, for some, um, that, that certainly um, has been thought to be a more difficult ask to the jury, especially when there was, you know, commotion at the scene and some resistance for sure that was captured by Floyd. Um, so basically, I think that the jury would have to believe that Strowman's a, a bad guy, that, that he's a, a bad seed cop, that um, he was on the force and um, he decided in that moment when there's a bunch of people around and he's being videotaped and, you know, other members of his force and, and he has his has his body cam on, that, that he is going to intentionally make it so Floyd can't breathe. I think that's a hard sell, um, but it certainly is possible in the climate in which we find ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's depraved mind murder. Depraved mind murder is the controversial charge of, of a person essentially um, taking a risk um, that is so great that it could endanger people and and, and essentially kill people, right? 
Um, the examples that we've cited um, in, in Minnesota previous to our recent appellate court ruling have um, covered things like giving drugs to somebody um, and then that causes their death. So, for example, the other passenger in Mr. Floyd's car, uh, car who employed um, use of the Fifth Amendment and chose not to testify and not answer one question because his lawyer effectively argued that for him to even put himself in the car puts himself in a position where he's looking at charges and certainly to potentially admit that he gave Mr. Floyd the drugs puts him in a spot where he could be facing charges of depraved mind murder, right? Another example previous to our recent court, uh, court of appeals ruling of depraved mind murder is driving 100 miles through downtown uh, and causing, you know, the death of somebody you didn't intend to and you certainly didn't point your act toward one particular person, but but in effect, nonetheless, your depraved mind caused the death, right? And then we've got uh, manslaughter too, which in some other uh, states um, has been uh, called involuntary manslaughter. So you don't have any intent uh, to cause the death, but you consciously take a risk um, that, that you should know, right, endangers um, a person's life. Um, that was the most recent charge uh, for the officer in Brooklyn Center here in Minnesota, where she claims that she thought she had her taser, but she grabbed her gun. Um, and without getting into the weeds and commenting on that case, you know, that case is going to turn on whether or not she consciously took a risk, right? And so the, the lowest charge is, of course, the easiest charge in which the jury could reach a conviction for Mr. Chauvin because kneeling on his neck for that long under all the circumstances that has been pointed out could be him taking a conscious risk that then caused the death of Mr. Floyd. Thanks, Krista. That's Krista Groshek of Groshek Law in Minneapolis. The first domino has fallen in the Justice Department's investigation into the deadly January 6th insurrection. A founding member of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, has entered the first guilty plea stemming from the Capitol riot and has agreed to cooperate with the Justice Department. John Schaefer entered his guilty plea on Friday to two counts, including obstruction of an official proceeding. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. What do we know about John Schaefer? So we know that John Schaefer was among the hundreds of Donald Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol. Um, on January 6th, that he's affiliated with the Oath Keepers, which is one of the far right-wing groups that uh, was heavily involved in the riot. He was wearing an Oath Keepers cap when he entered the Capitol. He is described by the Justice Department as a lifetime founding member of the Oath Keepers, kind of a central figure in in the organization. And we now know um, that he is the first of the hundreds of people charged in the Capitol riot to, to plead guilty and agree to cooperate in the Justice Department's investigation. What did he admit to in his plea? So he admitted to, to storming the Capitol and to, you know, breaking laws in the process of, of doing that. You know, he was also accused of specific things like using kind of a chemical spray as he forced his way in. So he's admitting to, to having done that as well. And he's, you know, crucially, you know, promising to work with investigators as they seek to kind of to, to build bigger cases and, and, and take down people who were involved in the riot. So this plea is being looked on as a breakthrough. Why so? In any major investigation, you need people to cooperate. Um, your goal is not just to kind of 
get the low hanging fruit. In this case, you know, the people who posted selfies of, of themselves storming the Capitol, but but also to to use them, use what they know to kind of go after people who may have been more intimately involved in kind of orchestrating crime, in this case, the, the siege of the Capitol. And I think, you know, we don't know what Schaefer knows and, you know, what evidence he might be able to supply to investigators. But one of the largest conspiracy cases stemming from from this investigation targets uh, about a dozen members of the Oath Keepers, not including Schaefer. And so it's reasonable to speculate that the feds might be hoping that Schaefer can sort of shine a light on on what those other members of the militia were doing and help them kind of build that bigger case that really targets the people who, who may have orchestrated the riot. So that would work even if he had a minor role in orchestrating? It all depends on what he knows. I mean, he hasn't been charged as part of the, that conspiracy, which suggests that prosecutors don't think that he was actually involved in it, though, of course, Maybe they do, and they've just refrained from charging him and, you know, are just hoping to get the information that he has. But we just, the answer is we just really don't know. I mean, this could be, this could be, a, you know, turn out to be a relatively minor, you know, plea deal that doesn't yield much information. But, you know, given the way that the Justice Department trumpeted this announcement, given the fact that it's the, the first plea deal they've reached, they clearly prioritized it and tried to move quickly, one would assume that they think they're going to get something good out of this in the form of, intelligence on, you know, other members of the Oath Keepers or maybe somebody who can just kind of explain on a broader level how the militia works, um, which could, could help prosecutors build a case. So he was not among that group of Oath Keepers who were in some kind of formation and they each had their hand on the shoulder of the one in front of them? No, he was not. He was not part of that kind of military style formation that, that stormed the Capitol. He was charged uh, separately from that group. Do you know how many conspiracy cases have been charged? Um, I can't remember the exact number of conspiracy cases, but the biggest case to have emerged from the investigation is the 12 Oath Keepers who've been charged in Washington with uh, a conspiracy to lay siege to the Capitol. Um, a group of Proud Boys has also been charged in a smaller conspiracy case. Um, and those are kind of the two sort of central cases um, that have kind of risen to the surface in the investigation so far. Do you know what charges are being considered, what the most serious charges being considered are? And so there's, you know, a conspiracy charge is, is very serious. Um, there's also talk of potential sedition charges, which is a kind of not quite unprecedented, but a very rare type of charge to level against anybody. And um, that would carry a long sentence. I can't, I think, I think about 10 years. And so those are, those are the sorts of kind of serious accusations that some of these rioters are facing. I mean, also some are being charged with assaulting police officers, which is serious. You know, there have been, there, there are two people who were charged with assaulting officers, including the officer, Brian Sicknick, who later died of injuries that he sustained at the Capitol. And it's possible that those two men could face felony murder charges at some point, which would obviously be very serious. That's basically the spectrum. The most common charges are things like obstruction of an official proceeding, which is something that Schaefer pled guilty to, you know, disorderly conduct, you know, entering official grounds without permission, that sort of thing. But then a level up from that, you have conspiracy, potential sedition charges, which we haven't seen yet, you know, felony murder in that one case, assaulting officers in other cases. So that's basically the spectrum. At the beginning of this, there was more talk and people knew more about the Proud Boys. 
than the Oath Keepers. Does it seem as if that has sort of changed and the Oath Keepers have emerged as the more dangerous, if you will, group? Well, I don't I don't think we need to, you know, parse between the two of them. I mean, prosecutors have charged members of both groups. If you look at the numbers, yes, more Oath Keepers have been charged than Proud Boys, but it's not by some, you know, ridiculous margin. And Proud Boys have been charged with conspiring to riot at the Capitol as well. Um, so really both groups have been have been targeted, though you're right, it's certainly the case the Oath Keepers were less known beforehand. Um, they just hadn't gotten as much publicity. The other thing that's worth remembering is we're still at a relatively early of what's likely to be a years-long investigation. There could be cases that prosecutors are building that we don't know about yet. It could be that the Proud Boys conspiracy case ends up becoming bigger than the Oath Keepers uh, conspiracy case as more defendants are added as the investigation progresses. Even though it feels like this has been going on for a long time, and it has, it's been going on for months, we've only just gotten out of the stage where the prosecutors are really just taking down the low-hanging fruit. We're now getting into the thick of the kind of longer-term investigations, sort of utilizing the more complex law enforcement tools that are going to take, you know, potentially months and months as uh, the Justice Department tries to get to the bottom of what happened. When the government told the court that they were pursuing this plea deal. They wrote that plea terms have required extensive review and approval at various levels of government. I thought it was interesting because that must be true of all cases, but do you think that there's more review going on than normal? Yeah, I think there certainly is. I mean, this is a politically sensitive investigation. You know, it's it's one of the central priorities of, you know, Merrick Garland's tenure at the Justice Department. And so it, you know, it stands to reason that the first plea deal to emerge from this massively important investigation would receive more scrutiny than just a run-of-the-mill plea deal involving somebody who's committed a, you know, a less public crime. Do you have any sense of who the government will deal with and who they won't deal with? I'm wondering if there is just some people that they won't deal with. Yeah, I mean, it depends on it depends on what the people have been accused of. You know, they're unlikely to cut a super nice deal with the very top person at the Oath Keepers who they think was, uh, you know, behind the orchestration of the riot because, you know, that's the person who they want to target. Um, and, you know, you can almost think of this as like an organized crime investigation where they flip people lower in the pyramid as a way to getting to the people at the top. Um I think that's probably the approach that the Justice Department is taking. And, you know, there, there's also a sense, a sort of broader sense that there are crucial gradations uh, that people weren't totally conscious of on January 6th between different levels of misconduct at the Capitol. I mean, you had people who were assaulting police officers, vandalizing the building, and who were maybe even planning this ahead of time. And then you had people who were just kind of showed up at the rally and then kind of followed the crowd inside and sort of wandered around aimlessly inside the Capitol and then left. And those are different types of criminal conduct, and they're being treated differently. And if you're in the latter category, I think you're you're likely to get uh, more sympathetic treatment. Is law enforcement going after everyone they can identify, or are they just ignoring the people that, as you say, maybe just walked in with the crowd and walked through? There have been reports that there's internal debate within the Justice over whether to go after everybody. But in the public statements that uh, prosecutors have made to the press, they have insisted that they are going after everybody, that 
you set foot in the Capitol that day, they have their eye on you. Now, it's certainly the case that there were people in the Capitol that day who'll never get caught. Um, not everybody's face was captured in video footage. It was a huge crowd. And I think prosecutors have come to acknowledge that they're not going to track down every last person. Several people have been are being held in jail pending trial. And I don't know if it's because they're in different jurisdictions. It doesn't seem as if there's any kind of rhyme or reason for who's being kept in as far as the people who were the faces of it. For example, the guy who was in Nancy Pelosi's office is being held, but the guy who stole the podium is not being held. Yeah, I mean, this is the subject of a lot of of a lot of courtroom debate. I mean, first, it's worth noting that some of the people who were initially the faces of the riot, um, you know, are now no longer the kind of major targets of the prosecutors, right? I mean, as, as the Justice Department becomes more interested in who planned the riot and less interested in who was photographed in the most obnoxious way on January 6th, you know, the, the priorities change, basically. But yeah, no, there's a lot of debate about who should be held pending trial, who should be granted bail, the D.C. Circuit, the Appeals Court, the Federal Appeals Court in D.C. issued a ruling a couple of weeks ago that sort of articulated the distinction between people who just walked in and people who committed more serious crimes inside and basically said that, you know, if you fall into the less serious category, then, you know, you should probably be granted bail. And so that was a really helpful ruling for defense lawyers and has been invoked repeatedly in the court over the last few weeks. Um, as defense lawyers have argued that their clients shouldn't be held uh, pending trial. But, you know, it, it, all of the factors that go into a bail decision apply here. You know, does the person have a criminal record? Are they a flight risk? How serious was the crime? You know, how good are their lawyers at making the case for them? You know, were they able to mobilize, you know, you know, character witnesses who could, you know, testify to the fact that the person wouldn't be held, you know, what mood was the judge in that day? You know, (laughs) it's not, it's not an exact science, but there are these gradations of conduct at the Capitol that I think are the primary driving force of who gets bail and and who doesn't. And it's as simple as if you committed a more serious crime, you're less likely to get bail. I also want to touch on another topic. Tell us about what happened in the death of Ashley Babbitt. Okay. So, you know, this was a viral video that circulated the day of the riot and which was incredibly disturbing. You could see Ashley, Ashley Babbitt, who is one of the people who stormed the Capitol, um, sort of stand up inside a doorway with a broken window inside the Capitol and then get shot and fall to the ground. And she later died. And so she was one of the handful of people who, who died as a result of the violence of the Capitol. Um, and the Justice Department announced last week that it wasn't going to bring charges against the officer, the the Capitol Police officer who shot her, that basically they were unable to find any evidence supporting the idea that the officer had had broken a law or, you know, not acted in a reasonable way when, when he shot her. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. Please subscribe. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.